always like, that's one of the big things that comes up. Like people just want to like get in there, and fix it and make it better and find a solution. And it's so hard to like, let go of that and to offer. Yeah. Just presence. And like, I'm, I'm seeing you, I'm, I'm here and I am wanting to understand at a, at a deep level what's happening. Okay, so joining us today, I have Dr. Rachel Stevens. Dr. Stevens uh, has recently received a promotion to director of Regent University's Psychological Services Center. She has developed expertise in working with college populations, especially those experiencing developmental trauma and abuse. She graduated from Regent University with a PsyD and then completed, completed an APA accredited internship at the University of Virginia's Counseling and Psychological Services Center, uh, followed by a postdoctoral residency at University Counseling Services through Virginia Commonwealth University. In addition to her experience in trauma recovery, she also has clinical interest in multiculturalism, group therapy, attachment and spirituality, and gender dynamics. Dr. Stevens, thank you so much for joining us today. Happy to do it. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's good to see you. <laughs> um, so if you could, can you just kind of tell us uh, where your interest in psychology first began? Yeah, um, well, when I was in college, I initially thought I was going to be a high school music teacher. I thought I was going to um, teach choir for the rest of my life. Huh. And um, But as part of that, I took some education classes while I was studying music. And um, I had one education class that was on um Man, I can't even remember the actual name of the class, but it was about how to have an inclusive classroom and like um, recognizing like that your classroom is going to contain gifted students. It's also going to contain students who didn't get to eat breakfast that morning at home and mm. whose you know, parents are separating or who, did, who slept in their car last night. Mm. And I just was so kind of like overcome with the realization of, you know, I love music and music is still a very important part of my life, but I don't know that I can focus on that when I know that all these other things that are going on for these people in my classroom and, mm. you know, is that going to be the thing that feels way more compelling to me every day and is music going to feel like, you know, we have to do this, but I care about these other things. And so um, it brought about a bit of a life trajectory shift for me I decided to drop my music major and um, pursue a degree in psychology instead. So. Okay. And then uh, once you got into psychology and like undergrad, what did you think of the courses? Is from then straightforward, you looked back no regrets or how was it? <laughs> <laughs> it was a bit of a like, I guess, coming to terms process in some ways. Like um, my family was, I did not grow up being very familiar with the field of psychology or with the idea of therapy or um anything like that. I don't think my parents were necessarily like totally against it, but it wasn't something that was part of our day-to-day, -day, you know, family culture either. So um, it was a bit of a new territory of sorts. And um, I do remember sitting in a, it was a lifespan class in my undergrad and um, those professors started talking, Dr. Puffer, I his name, Dr. Puffer, started talking about um, the idea that all truth is God's truth and like that you can, you don't have to be 
worried about like finding out these other truths about like who we are as human beings because it's it all comes from god you know if it's true and i do remember just my mind being kind of like blown by that like oh gosh like i can step into this without fear and without like this worry that i'm gonna lose my faith or be like drawn into this humanistic secular mm. you know world and um uh -huh. and so i was very grateful to kind of make that transition in the context of like talking to other you know learning from christian professors in that area who kind of like started me in thinking about psychology in that way yeah, yeah I, i've mentioned it before but uh personally when i started going to college for psychology my undergrad program mm -hmm. i told my parents and they personally they said well we think that you should study something like theology because you know psychology and so uh yeah i think it's kind of a similar background but um yeah yeah so i remember someone like i came home on a break from college and someone from my church was like well i'm gonna pray really hard that like yeah, the devil doesn't get you essentially oh. <laughs> like, through psychology. Um, I'm like, oh gosh, yeah. like, you know, what have I done here? But um, which is, I don't, I say that with like a deep amount of empathy for the, the woman who said that to me. Like, I understand yeah. like the fear there. Yeah. And also, um, it brings a smile to my face a bit because I also feel like my relationship with the Lord has deepened so much mm. in learning about humanity through the field mm. of psychology so no. um, i think her prayer was answered so you know i did not yeah. fall. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> good yeah. um and then so where did you attend you said you did you stay within the same university to study psychology that you yeah yeah i went to indiana wesleyan university it's a really small school in the midwest yeah and then what what brought you to regent uh, I had a good friend who also studied psychology, also studied music with me. We kind of had like parallel lives and she came out to Regent to get her PsyD. Um, and so I knew I wanted to, to go to an integrative program. And like you said, I, that had really meant a lot to me to be able to kind of uh, bring my faith into that, that uh, academic space as well. And so I knew she was really liking Regent and applied there and I actually stayed with her when I came to interview and okay. um, it kind of had, I applied to, um, to Biola as well. That was my other kind of, I was like, I'm gonna choose one of these coasts and we'll see which one wins out. Uh, but I really um, had a great experience in my interview and uh, felt like that was the door that was opening for me. So hmm. found myself at Regent and, and actually my friend from, college is um rebecca hoofner who now has a practice out here and we still get together and oh cool uh, so it's kind of neat our lives have continued to overlap in various ways so. yeah that's neat yeah I, I don't know if you want to get into it too much but uh how was your experience with biola or did did you get accepted there and you had to weigh the two i did have to weigh the two and um it was i think I felt like I was able to, um, I felt more attainable to live out here with and attend region. Um, like even just like the cost of living and everything with California just felt like such a major culture shift and like financial shift for me that that was a lot harder to kind of wrap my mind around. Um, 
I was newly married and we had no money. And um, <laughs> so <laughs> that, that was certainly part of it too. So. Yeah. Okay. And then, so um, with your love of music, have you been able to, or I don't know much about this, but is there any way to incorporate music into therapy or have you done any type of research on that? I have not done a lot. I, when I was a student, I looked at research a little bit about music therapy and oh. yeah, that's certainly you know something I could look into more. I haven't much, but I do think it influences me. Uh, I love creating. I love like, um, on my breaks and stuff like that. I also often will do quilting or like mm -hmm. art and stuff like that. I love just like the creative process. And I do think that influences how I approach clinical work, mm -hmm. um, with a bit of the like artistry mindset <laughs> and not as much the like, I shouldn't say not as much. I still obviously like believe in science and like the scientific <laughs> part of it, but the, the artistry piece is really important to me and the idea of like, of resonance, of finding, of learning a, a, a client, of um, adapting to that unique person um, is very compelling to me. And I do think that flows out of the kind of like musician piece. Yeah, yeah. Can you speak a little bit about your theoretical orientation? Yeah, um, I am very, I just can't get over relationships and people um, no matter how if i were to try i just could not see the world in a different way um, and i remember uh, you know attending a class on uh, a sequence on psychodynamic therapy and theory that was going when i was a student and it just felt like putting words to something that had like been there for me that i didn't know how to articulate um, and so that certainly like was a very life-giving kind of start to learning about my own theoretical orientation. And I still, um, you know, those, those kind of dynamic principles, I think are still kind of interwoven into how I view things as a clinician. Mm -hmm. um, but I also, from there, kind of discovered the more experiential camps of therapy, um, specifically accelerated experiential dynamic psychotherapy or AADP is very uh, interesting to me if I were to, choose kind of like one label to uh, kind of define myself as a, as a clinician, it would probably be that. Okay. Um, and so, you know, Diana Fosha, who kind of developed this model, she, she started out as a psychoanalyst and psychodynamic clinician, and she got kind of like fed up with how um, psychodynamic work can be kind of like aggressive in some ways like you gotta like beat down this person's defenses and just kind of like <laughs> break them a little bit <laughs> and so she was trying to like find like there's got to be something with more compassion um while also like really believing in some of these more like relational dynamic principles about how how people are in the world and um so that has felt like a really natural fit to me. Um, and it's a lot of like very similar to the dynamic, uh, psychodynamic kind of theories, but also has this high um, value on affirmation for the client and like seeing, recognizing the client's strengths. Um, that as soon as you work, sit down with a client, um, that they're, 
there are adaptive things that they are trying. There's things that they are strengths that they're bringing to the table um, that need to be kind of like called out and uh, affirmed and reinforced. Mm. And I really do feel that that's a powerful aspect of therapy to like to start out on not only what's wrong with the client, but like what's what's right and what they're you know what they are trying to do, even if they have, even if they're trying very miserably and they don't have it right, like, but they're still trying, they're still find, trying to find something that will solve this problem. Um, and, and that that's worth validating and honoring for them in, in the first place. Um, and it's also a lot about undoing aloneness. So entering into the client's own experience their own emotions their own um capacity for seeing the world and um uncreating this this aloneness or isolation or um abandonment that most people feel when they've been through um, a trauma or painful experience like it does feel lonely it's hard to feel that someone really enters into that and understands it um and so that's a, a huge part of her focus as well. Um, and I, I've found that very compelling and also like energizing in, in clinical work, even when it's really heavy content. So, And so with AEDP, um, maybe the underpinnings of that, can you explain? So let's, for people like less familiar with it, like with, with something maybe like CBT, you, the theory is that if you change the thoughts, and maybe then the behaviors will change um, and the emotion, the thoughts, then the emotions and the behaviors. And so it's kind of a top down approach of let's change the thoughts and everything else will follow. Mm -hmm. um, maybe that's a very simplified way of explaining it. Right. But um, can you explain maybe the underpinnings of AEDP and what that looks like different going into therapy? Yeah. So it's essentially like the opposite <laughs> approach of um, you start with the body, you start with experience, um, you start with uh, it's a it's a bottom up kind of thing. So um, there's also if you listen to her work, it's a lot of you'll hear some echoes of emotion focused therapy too. the idea that we have these like core emotional states that if we were to allow them to if we were to harness those uh properties that, that emotion that it would it would help us move in an adaptive way um like probably the simplest like non-jargony explanation of that would be like the movie inside out which is like every you know therapist movie but whatever um but you know it takes joy time to learn that sadness has a purpose right in the movie and that sadness actually is instrumental in connecting to people and getting support getting care right and so um, if sadness is hampered from doing her job then it leads to isolation and you know it's shutting down and stuff so that would be a pretty like kind of in a nutshell scripture of like what when people are pursuing like helping someone articulate a core affect, a core emotion. The idea is that if they can access that emotion and process it through, it will release these, there's a purpose for it and it will release some adaptive sort of um, space for movement. And that then behavior and cognitions will follow that. And then that undo that undoes aloneness. Right, right, huh. yeah. yeah. You're yeah. allowing them to process this deep emotion in the presence of a 
and they call it like an attuned other, someone who's really like connected um, on a neurological level, like they are, they're resonating and, and attuned to that person. This is, um, we can talk a little bit more about it in a moment, but also, so I'm going through Dr. Stevens' group therapy class right now. And uh, the very beginning, one of the slides was a quote by Harry Sack Sullivan that said, um, people, uh, I'm gonna misquote it, but basically people, it takes people to hurt other people and then it takes people to heal other people. Mm -hmm. And so, Taking that along with, we're taking social psychology right now. Uh, Dr. Eric Jones is teaching it. Mm -hmm. And his whole, he's just trying to sell us this social psychology. They, um, they, they postulate, most of them postulate that our main purpose is to survive. And he's trying to say that that's not our main purpose. Our main purpose, is, our main purpose in life is relationships. Like that's why we live. We don't live to survive. We live to engage in relational so um, that along with group, along with this, uh, and in, in my own very limited one year of personal experience with clients, um, I talked with my wife about it and it was like, I think one of the most beneficial things that we can do is so many people come in and they have poor relationships, that poor social support. And one of the most beneficial things we can do is try to get them uh, to build up a social support. Mm -hmm. And and it, it wasn't that wasn't an evident issue to me at, at the beginning, but by the end of this past year, it, it very much became so. And then with social psychology and group. And mm -hmm. so that's uh, a very big learning experience for me. So uh, the AEDP also, I, it makes a lot of sense to me. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and undoing aloneness is such a, it's such a, uh, valuable concept to grasp for a therapist i think yeah. yeah i think it connects to the idea of like presence and that um you know we want so bad as human beings to try and fix things for people <laughs> you know i'm going through like clinical interviewing um which i do every fall and it's always like that's one of the big things that comes up like people just want to like get in there and fix it and make it better and find a solution and it's so hard to like let go of that and to offer yeah just presence and like i'm i'm seeing you i'm i'm here and i am wanting to understand at a, at a deep level what's happening even mm -hmm. though i'm not offering the answers maybe at first um but i think even theologically it's just so powerful to me because you know the the trinity is in constant communion with itself and um that i think god has has created us to be in communion and um with him with others and and so in facilitating that for people i do think we're bringing them back to something that like god intended that god intended them to be deeply connected to one another um yeah. And not just like a brief, you know, life update posted on social media, but <laughs> something with substance and, and mm. depth to it. Yeah. yeah, I even told Jeff today the, I don't know if this is the way it was really meant, but just the thought, the thought came to my mind where God said, it is not good that man should be alone. It doesn't necessarily have to mean that, you know, not everyone out there needs to be with a significant other, but just yeah. that phrase general statement, the blanket statement, it's not good for man to be alone. So Absolutely. even just that. 
um, that led me to that led me to another thought, but I can't I can't think of what it was. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So can how about let's talk about a little bit about group therapy. Um, yeah. I think that a lot of people have mis kind of misperceptions about group and what it looks like and um, and you know am I just gonna go and listen to a bunch of people kind of complain about things and and so uh, can you tell us a little bit about group therapy and maybe what got you interested in 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 that yeah um, group <laughs> group <laughs> is something I kind of fell into <laughs> I did not I gotta be honest I did not intentionally seek that out and um, then when I look I really got a lot of group experience through counseling centers because universities are probably some of the best hubs for effective groups. Um, and there's probably multiple reasons for that. But um, once I left university counseling and um, started my, my job here at, at Regent, I kind of realized that this understanding of group and like use of group that I'd I just felt like it was just what was expected in university counseling was actually something unique to my training um, and um, kind of started developing this the, the group class sequence and the group clinic at Regent as a result and um, I think as I again kind of like got distance from where I trained in that um, I realized like that it fit really well with some of again some of how I see the world and um, kind of provided a powerful testing ground I guess for people to develop the type of close relationships and honest relationships that I feel are transformative. Mm. Um, but at the same time, most people I think when they think of group therapy, they think of a class. Um, like something that they're just going to like get taught a skill and get some handouts and they go home or um, just like a check-in group of like I gotta I go in and I say like what happened in my week and then we all leave and like what does that mean you know so um, neither of which are very compelling reasons to <laughs> go <laughs> like, sit with a bunch of random people and um, who are not trained professionals and like ex that, like what am I expected to get out of that right mm. so um but I think in helping with assisting with a lot of groups, I came to see kind of the power of what it means to actually get feedback from another person. Like those, those thoughts that are in everyone's mind of like, you know, I wonder what I'm really like to others. Like if you ever see a photograph of yourself or a video of yourself, you're like, really? Like that's how I look at a picture or <laughs> I, I hear your voice. My voice sounds like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like everyone's gotten in the past year and a half of using Zoom constantly <laughs> and getting this little box of feedback in the corner all the time. I'm like, I've learned so much about myself in therapy. I'm like, man, I turn my head to the side way more than I thought I did and all this stuff. But um, that, that desire of like, huh, I wonder what I'm like from another's perspective, um, is so like intriguing and thing to a lot of people and also incredibly scary because I could learn something really devastating about myself, but I also might like see this beautiful new part of myself that is not evident to me and is only to other people too. Um, and then pairing that with what if other people knew this like deep internal 
the things about myself that I don't like to share with others mm. and what is it like to do that and maybe find connection or understanding or um, empathy on the other side of that. And so when those two things are combined, I think group is just such a powerful learning environment. Um, and really I'd have to say that my, my passion for group was solidified when I became, when I entered into group experiences myself, like there's, um, a conference I go to that has like a two day group process group experience. And it's like six hours of group therapy each day. And it's wow. ridiculous. Um, but also each time I've gone to it, I leave like, wow, I'm, you know, just like a new way of seeing myself in a group context, a new way of like learning something from a group. Um, it's always a, a very unpredictable, but still powerful experience. Mm. Um, and so that definitely solidified it for me mm. of like this, this has the power to really impact people. This is, this also might be too personable, but <laughs> <laughs> can you speak to maybe the biggest takeaway from a group experience that you've had? Gosh. I think, um, a little more personal, but I don't mind. Um, I, I think in grad, especially as a student, mm -hmm. I really struggled with um, getting feedback over and over about needing to be more assertive. Mm -hmm. And that just became like this thing that I would, I hated hearing that. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not, I didn't see myself as an assertive person. It felt like asking to be something that I wasn't and like a deficit that I just like didn't have the skill that I needed. Um, and I eventually had like a supervisor who helped me kind of reframe that as like, if assertive is not something that fits with who I see myself as, like, how could I also still speak up when I need to in a, in a group or in a room. And for me, I found the idea of honesty as so much more compelling to me than being assertive. Assertive, when I really kind of began to unpack it, had all these kind of like gendered associations to me of like what that meant. But to be honest, I could be, I could a hundred percent get behind that. And I definitely want to be honest with people, you know? And so, um, that kind of began a trying to like reclaim that that part as part of my um, leadership style as part of how I wanted to like present myself in professional contexts but also just like personally too um, and I think there were there was some like working out of that in some of the groups that I um, um, engaged in of kind of like experimenting with that like how could I be honest in my own way that was not uh, maybe it still came across as assertive to other people, but it felt just so different to me. And like kind of experimenting with that was really fun and um, helpful. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. That's helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and so in group, let's say, let's say you have, okay, let's say that you have a thought about somebody else. Maybe other people are thinking it. How often do you speak up about it and be transparent? Like if you're like, this guy's really not as funny as he, I think he thinks he is. <laughs> Should we tell him? Like, how does that? Yeah. <laughs> Should we break him a bit today? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so from a group perspective, I think the kind of like litmus test that I would try and give myself in that moment is um, 
can I approach this with curiosity and can I um, approach this with an eye towards growth and not just being right or making someone feel bad or, you know, there's lots of other internal motivations we might have for giving feedback to someone. And especially in group, the people we want to give feedback to the most are often the ones who are most obnoxious in group, right? Like the person who won't stop talking or the person who just like goes on and on about themselves or who is really rude to other group members. And so when you get to the point of like having a deep desire to give feedback, sometimes it's like this person's been a jerk and they need to be put in their place. Right. Uh And that is very emotionally satisfying for the person doing that. And also very rarely leads to actual growth or, or change. Mm-hmm. And so I do think to be a, an effective like group therapist, and I think of this when I'm considering like leadership positions I'm in too, like to be a good leader, I have to uh, share my honesty out of a desire for, for goodness and growth to come from it. Like mm-hmm. honesty for the sake of honesty doesn't always help people. Uh-huh. Um, but it is if I can, share it out of this desire for for growth to occur then um then i think it's it's not kind to not do that mm-hmm. <laughs> right like yeah. to hold out when i feel like there's space for someone to grow and i really think that they could if they heard that honest feedback then i feel more of a like sense of duty to them out of care like i, I should do that mm. yeah yeah it, bible verses are coming to my mind but it reminds me of uh, you know, not being honest, if it's not going to be helpful, I thought of casting pearl before swine. Yeah. yeah. And then, and then if it is helpful, like the wise man loves instruction. So I think about that too. Like, um, um, yeah, so I don't know. Those just paralleled in my mind. Yeah. And I don't, unfortunately, I don't think like helpful always means like that it's not going to be without hurt or mm. that it's going to be easy. Like, mm-hmm. I think, sometimes that does mean like there will be an initial like ouch or a wound of some sort. Um, And again, like, can I, like, can I um, check myself to see like, can I feel that ouch like and know that and like empathize with the reality of that, that wound and still, does it still feel like it's worth it to give? Mm. Um, That's a wound with a a purpose and not just a wound that makes me feel better. And like, uh, I've like caused some, like you're you're you've made me suffer and i'm gonna make you suffer kind of thing right yeah and is is that though that kind of stipulation of the way that you just now explained Mm -hmm. knowing when or not to tell someone something is that kind of given to every group member before it starts like this is kind of what we expect or maybe common courtesy would say this or (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean i think not that explicitly, but we would say, usually with my group agreements, I'll say, um, in group, I always want you to feel safe and meaning that like people are, um, not going to, no one's going to say some like racist, um, you know, homophobic thing that is going to just insult who you are. Like you shouldn't be insulted in group, but you should, um, you should not always feel comfortable and there will be uncomfortable things Mm. that are said in group, Uh either that you will be asked to say something uncomfortable or something uncomfortable might be said to you and you'll have to respond. And so I think that kind of like encapsulates that a bit, but um, the idea of like embracing discomfort and um, 
we, I do also say like, you may feel tempted to, um, if you're someone who talks a lot and you know that, you may be tempted to try and not talk a lot in group, um, or you may like to try and essentially fix the, the problem that's coming, that is the reason you're coming to group. Mm-hmm. And essentially like, don't do that. Just try and be yourself because that's, um, that's what we want. Like the authentic expression of who you are is going to come out anyways, no matter how hard you try, but like <laughs> why lengthen that process by trying to put on some sort of face. So Interesting. Thank you. And then, okay. So, so you have an extensive, I guess, background or interest in trauma as well. And you have uh, every, so every faculty, not every faculty member, but a lot of the faculty here at Regent, they have their research groups. Um, can you talk to us about your research group and what it is that you guys do? Maybe some projects that you're working on? Yeah. Um, my, gosh, my research team is always a very much a work in progress. Or, um, I still feel like we're a little baby research team in a lot of ways. But um, when I was praying about starting my research team, because I did it, started the second year of my, my position, um, I was like, I just don't research just for the sake of like publishing and having in some obscure journal and you know a couple of people read it just feels so unmotivating to me <laughs> from my like clinician mindset um and so i was like i really need to feel like this is worth my time and like compelling on a practical boots on the ground level um and so that is probably the most guiding principle at this point of my team was like i want to make a practical impact through the work that's done there. Um, and that's probably two or three fold. Like one is um, helping to develop clinicians in, in doing good trauma-informed work um, because I think the more that you're trained to work with trauma in, a, um, in clinical work, like the more you'll realize that most clients have been through a traumatic experience that's impacted them in some way. And like, we just need to be prepared to, to work with that. So, um, and also like trauma, we have a trauma elective in our course sequence, you know, every other year, maybe 10, 12 people will take that, but that's not nearly all of our students. So I think that there's just a big gap for, um, like, I want to just foster good, trauma-informed clinical skills through through the team um, and basing those on on research like what's the most recent research coming out about how to um, work with trauma the impact of trauma on our um, neurobiology that's incredibly compelling to me and I think something that every good clinician needs to understand on at least a basic level um, and so then also helping the community we've done some kind of like outreach kind of work for to address the essentially trauma needs in our own backyard and then doing some kind of active research too so poster presentations at apa um the probably two big projects that we have going on right now is a a, um, a group study on um, how therapy groups can alleviate shame and increase self-compassion for trauma survivors Um, and then also we have a partnership with a domestic sex trafficking shelter in the baltimore area and trying to help them with some some research projects as well Um, mainly doing some like outcome assessment work for them and helping them kind of like get some objective data on the effectiveness of their model 
Good. Um, and then one, two last, two, two last questions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, where do you see yourself in, in 10 years? Do you want to stay mainly in academia? Uh, what kind of, what's, what's your hopes and dreams with your career? <laughs> I saw that question on your list. I was like, where do I want to see myself in 10 years? I don't know. I don't often think about where I want to be next week. So, mm -hmm. um, and when I really thought about it, I was like, I, I really do hope I'm here, like doing what I'm doing now in 10 years, because um, I I love the, the mix of things that I get to do in this job is um, so, I think, perfect for how God has equipped me and what he's given me interest in, and passion in, in doing. Um, and in a way that I really never foresaw, I didn't think I was going to, you know, have a career in academia, but, um, the mix of being able to invest a lot of my time in the clinic and help clinicians with kind of getting through those first few hurdles of seeing clients and like, that's just incredibly rewarding to me. Um, I get to teach on things that I'm very passionate about, like group and trauma and, um, you know, the clinical interviewing class is really fun too. Um, and I also see a few clients in my private practice too and get to kind of have that, those skills still sharpened. Um, so it's an awesome mix of, of roles. And, um, you know, if anything in, in the next 10 years, I would love to do more, um, maybe some like public speaking and like publish some um, more like practical things that would be for more lay audiences versus mm. academic. But um, those, you know, so I'd like to see it maybe expand in new ways, but I hope I'm here in 10 years. I really do. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you know, you mentioned publishing something for lay audience. I remember you told me about your thought about writing a book once. Um, yes. Yeah. I was trying to pressure you into it. Yeah. <laughs> I actually have weekly writing time slotted in my calendar oh, now for it and it's great. happening. So good. Good. Yeah. It might take me a really long time, but uh -huh. it will it, it is going it is in progress now. So. <laughs> Putting yeah. it into your calendar, that's the first step, you know. Yes, it is. It is. <laughs> uh and then so yeah, you recently began a group for mothers, uh and upcoming mothers in the program. Can you tell us what led up to this? Um, and what it, what the group is about and kind of what we can see or expect from that? Yeah, I, well, I'll be honest. I don't know what to expect from it. <laughs> um, it's more of a invitation than a um, detailed plan at this point. But um, I, so I'm, I'm kind of figuring out where to start here. This also feels like more personal to me, but it's also really important. Um, I grew up in a, um, a home where my mom, like she was a nurse, she is a nurse and, um, she sacrificed a lot of her career in order to like homeschool myself and my sister, um, while we grew up. And, um, I, you know, especially growing into adulthood, I feel like very aware of like what that sacrifice meant and like trying to put myself in her shoes and what that must've been like at times. Um, but I always, I think in college, even I had this feeling of like, oh, I really want to like be a, in some ways a stay at home mom, but I also had like these interests I wanted to pursue. And so um, I think it, I just feel that tension of like what it means to be a, a mother or a parent and then also to pursue um, 
work that I will say more and more um, as I went through grad school and definitely as I've been working, I, I know that God has called me to this as much as he's called me to being a parent to my girls. Uh -huh. But the, the working out of that, um, those mutual callings can feel very messy. Mm -hmm. And um, also, honestly, like full of a lot of guilt. I think, you know, there's a lot of conversation about like mom guilt and like um, just the guilt that can come with being a parent who just a parent period i'll just want to even add any other specifiers there but um i've definitely like felt that at times of like you know the the worry of how do i fulfill each of these roles well and in a way that honors god and that um you know gives my best to to each of them and so i know you know, when I first took my job at Regent, I really tried to not talk about my, my daughter at that time. I tried to like, I was very conscious of like not wanting to be seen as like the mom professor uh. and what that would mean and like how people would see me then or if it would be like less professional. And um, it was kind of interesting, like last year being pregnant in my role, it's like very, unavoidable to talk about like <laughs> I have a family and I have children and um, it brought up a lot of conversations that um, I had not really had before and um, you know kind of like had me face my own discomfort with that like even even just like some of the if someone would say like that's really I know someone said to me once like that's really inspiring and like I'm gonna like come to you with my questions down the road and like that night I'm like at home crying I'm like I'm not inspiring like, oh. I feel so like fake by doing like am I being am I showing up authentically at work if you know and showing like this is not easy not in a way to like get pity or something like that but also like I want to be honest about what it means to be a mother who's also embracing a career mm -hmm. and um and also didn't always feel like I had good models of that or like models that I was close to when I was in grad school or even, you know, just thinking about like my, the composition of like my church and my, you know, other social circles. There's not always a lot of women who are um, in that similar experience and especially in church settings. And so I um, have in having conversations with students and, um, essentially becoming more comfortable with those dual roles and being honest with them uh, with other people about them i thought you know i'll at least like give some space for a conversation here and um i think that we need more than just kind of like a passing <laughs> hallway conversation about what it means to like pursue both those things um and yeah. so again what that will look like or what that means i don't know but um it's yeah i would say it's just an invitation at this point for um yeah some resonance some some undoing aloneness in the, <laughs> the journey of <laughs> um working and um parenthood at the same time so yeah that um because so i remember when you first started talking about when you, you told me about that and then yeah. um it is for you to be as busy as you are. And we see how busy you are all the time, right? <laughs> and then, uh, and we joke about like, oh, yeah, with all your free time, you're gonna write a book, right? Um, but it is like with all with all your free time, 
you you're starting this group and it is maybe it's only I don't know an hour a month or an hour every other week but that is still an hour that you're setting aside and I think um personally just from communication with cohort members and I think that is a big need and I think that it it can be isolating and it can be very um maybe bewildering to try and balance these two like you said um those two roles you feel an equal calling uh, maybe equal for both and we come here to school and we get all of this knowledge on how to be a psychologist which a lot of us feel like is a calling but then there's no input on how to um maybe the intersection i guess of of the role as a psychologist and the role as a mother and or father and then how to balance those and how to yeah so how to properly balance that so for for you to go through that and then to offer space for people who are feeling bewildered or alone or isolated i think that's a very admirable thing <laughs> well, admirable feels like a lot for me to take in on that. But, yeah. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I've said even in the announcement, like I don't approach this as someone who has all the answers. I really don't, um, mm -hmm. and it's you know I'm constantly in my own working through of what that means. Uh -huh. um, but I think my biggest um, learning point thus far has been to to press into both of those things to not. Um, move in fear and to instead like embrace like there is a there is a place for each of these in life. Um, mm. I remember even in this spring when I was um, kind of like in a pseudo maternity leave, um, but like still, you know, working, but getting back into the swing of working after having my second daughter. And my mom was like, do you ever think about just going down to part time? Like, you mm. could you just you know, could you just make it a little easier? And I was like, <laughs> honestly, like it's, it never even crosses my mind. I don't, it doesn't feel like a temptation. It, you know, I, I love what I do and I feel God's presence in what I do. Um, whether that is, um, <laughs> playing with my girls or doing a therapy session, I feel God's presence there. And I think it's worth pursuing in both of those domains. But, uh, what, that means on a day-to-day -day basis is kind of a shifting target and yeah if anyone else wants to talk that through um i'm all for it and also fathers don't have an easy road to pass uh, to um tread either but i also can't speak to that experience so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah okay dr stevens thanks uh thanks for being i asked you some some kind of personal questions so thanks for being transparent and honest and thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to meet with me Absolutely. Always um, a pleasure. It's enjoyable. So thank Good. you. Thank you. <laughs>